Well, it is certainly good to see each of you this morning. We have a nice crowd with us, and we are certainly appreciative of that, especially if you're visiting with us. We are glad that you are here this morning. If you would, open your Bibles to Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11. We're going to notice for just a moment verses 12 through 14. Mark 11, 12 through 14. Mark records for us, And on the morrow, when they were come from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing a fig tree, afar off, having leaves, he came, if haply he might find anything thereon. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for the time of figs was not yet. And Jesus answered and said unto it, No man eat fruit of thee hereafter forever. And his disciples heard it. The miracle of the withered fig tree is a very peculiar and distinct miracle because it is the only miracle that we have recorded for us that was actually a miracle of judgment. Every other miracle that we have recorded for us in the Holy Scriptures is a miracle of goodness and mercy in some way. Whether it was feeding hungry or raising the dead, or whether it was healing the sick or causing the blind to see, or whatever the case may be, it was a miracle of goodness and mercy. Whereas this is a miracle of punishment, of judgment. A miracle that is unlike any other miracle that we read about in the Bible. I want us to notice the setting of this miracle. The setting also appeals to the reader in that when we read about where Jesus is at this point in history, we see that it took place in an area where he could find consolation, where he could find rest, where he could find friendship, where he could find those things that he needed in the physical body. He was in the home most likely of his good friend Lazarus and his two sisters, Mary and Martha. The rest and peace that could be found in this home or this area could not be found in the city streets, the busy streets of Jerusalem. Now, we understand what Jesus took upon Himself by allowing Himself to come to earth, to be fashioned in the form of a man, to live as a man, to be a man, What He gave up by coming to earth, I want us to notice some of those things. His accepted poverty brought us life. He was born in another man's stable, Luke 2, verse 7. He slept in a borrowed bed, Luke 7, 36. He was buried in another man's grave, Matthew 27, 59. Through 60. And while he found hatred and plots and, and people wanting to harm his physical body in Jerusalem, he found all the things that he needed in this physical life in this area in the home of his friends. I think that is something that we often overlook. We overlook the fact that 
He had all of these great responsibilities. He didn't really have a place of his own. He didn't have somewhere where he could go on a regular basis. He just simply endured. He persevered. He kept going. He kept allowing God's plan to unfold. And in this one particular instance where we have this very distinctive parable, we learn some very important things. And I think we can make some great application to our own lives today. So as we look at this section of Scripture, I want us to begin by understanding and talking a little bit about the curse of the tree itself. The curse. The tree had presented itself as offering something promising. There was a promise. The tree put on leaves. It appeared that it would have fruit. And Jesus goes to the tree and there is nothing there. The backdrop of this particular miracle is the Monday of the final week of the life of our Lord. Coming toward the end of that week, He would give His life. He was making preparation to fulfill the commandments that God had given Him. He was coming or bringing to an end the work that had been placed in Him to perform. And following His triumphant entry into Jerusalem, He would return, but not in the same way that He went the first time. This is all the backdrop to what happened here, or what would happen here. I want us to notice that the first time when Jesus entered into Jerusalem, He rode in upon a colt, He rode into the cheers of Hosanna to the Son of David, Blessed is He that cometh into the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. They were, they were singing out praises to Him. They were happy that He was on His way because they thought that He would bring with Him a physical nation of Israel, a physical kingdom, and they could throw off the yoke of bondage. Well, His final entry would include being dragged into Jerusalem to the shouts of the chief priests, We have no king besides Caesar. John 19.15 At this time though, when this parable or when this miracle is being recorded, we are given a glimpse into the very humanity of Jesus. Something that sometimes again we overlook. Some things that we do not understand that Jesus Himself became sleepy on occasion, right? He worried on occasion. He no doubt at times was even sick or did not feel well. On this particular occasion, he was needing rest at the home of his friend. In this particular occasion, we see that our Lord became hungry. He needed something to eat. Perhaps he had left early that morning having not eaten. Maybe the contemplation of the things that were about to happen to him caused him to forego that feeling of hunger, and maybe he did not have an appetite. Maybe all the urging of Mary and Martha, and as we read the other accounts of Martha, I can almost hear her begging him to allow her to prepare food for him. Maybe he foregone all of those things, leaving, thinking about the mission on which God had sent him. Maybe... After he began his walk, 
And he began to continue to do what he was doing as he was headed into Jerusalem. Maybe at that point the hunger came back to the forefront of his mind because after all he was a man. But the focus of the moment was the discovery of the, of the Lord of the world, the Savior of all mankind, the discovery of a means by which he could alleviate his hunger. It is recorded for us a fig tree in the way. Matthew 21, 19. As he was on his travel. Now, how amazing is it that he who could feed thousands of people with a little bit of fish and a little bit of bread would not perform a miracle to feed himself. He would not take care or satisfy his own physical needs through a miracle which he was very much able to perform. We see his great restraint in his use of the miraculous. He wouldn't provide by miracle what was capable to attain by humanity. He just did not do that. He would not use the power of God to provide for his personal needs. He was a selfless and not a selfish person. We have to remember, no miracle was ever worked for the sake of working a miracle. It was never worked in an effort to try to scare someone into believing and following the promised Messiah. There were very specific reasons for the performance of any miracle. So as the, the, the group of men are traveling toward Jerusalem... All attention is on the Lord as He moved toward the fig tree in hope of finding food. Well, upon arriving, what did He find? All He found was a tree with leaves and no fruit. The question is asked, why would the Lord, the Creator of heaven and earth, go to inspect a tree when it was not seasoned for the fruit to be on it. Well, that's an interesting aspect of the fig tree. It is the nature of the fig tree to put on leaves and then to put on fruit. It is the nature of the fig tree to have a fruit that is kind of a pre-fruit. I want us to notice what R.K. Harrison wrote in the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia. He explains in his writings that various kinds of fig trees grew in Palestine during the first century. He says one very important aspect of fig growth has to do with the relationship between the leaf and the fruit. Harrison noted that tiny figs known to the Arabs as tacks appear simultaneously in the leaf axils. This fruit is edible. And it was often gathered for sale in the markets. He said the green fruit was relished, especially by peasants. And when we continue reading the text, he noted, When the young leaves are appearing in spring, every fertile fig will have some tash or green figs on it. But if a tree with leaves does not have this fruit, it will be barren for the entire season. Now we begin to see the issue, don't we? We have a tree 
who has presented itself as making a promise that there is fruit upon it. And when the Lord went to the tree, He did not find fruit. He found a barren tree. And it would remain that way. I want us to notice, because of the hypocrisy of the tree, a great punishment followed. The one who came not to destroy men's lives, but to save them, Luke 9.56, also came to pass judgment. That's an important aspect of the role that the Savior has played in the lives of men. He came not to destroy us, He came to save us, but He will return. But this time He will not return as the babe in the manger. He will not return as the sacrifice for all mankind. He will in fact return the next time as the judge of the world. He comes to pass judgment. He that rejecteth me, he said, and receiveth not my words, hath one that judgeth him. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. Now remember, there were men gathered around the Savior as he performed this act. And... Those of us who have read it since this time know full well of His eternal nature. We understand that the Lord was not surprised that the fig tree had no fruit on it. He knew full well that the tree had fruit on, did not have fruit on it. But He also understood the nature of the fig tree. It presented itself as having fruit. And so He is taking an opportunity here to use this tree as an object lesson for His disciples. Loud enough for those surrounding Him to hear it, Jesus cursed the deceitful tree, saying this, No man eat fruit of thee hereafter forever. Not only do you not have fruit on you right now, you're never going to have fruit on you. And He destroyed the tree. I imagine that having already witnessed the power of the Master, the anxious onlookers focused on the object of Christ's curse. Now we learn from Mark's account that the disciples did not see the result of this curse at that time, but that it did immediately happen. The tree immediately immediately withered. Of course, this is a great confirmation of the deity of Christ. When He spoke something, it happened. And of course we understand that He possessed all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, Colossians 2 verse 9. So it's not surprising to us when we read the account that when He spoke the curse upon the tree, that it would immediately wither. That's just exactly how things happen when God is operating in this world, right? The psalmist stated in the long ago, he said, by the way of the Lord... Were the, by the word of the Lord were the heavens made, and all the host of them by the breath of His mouth. He went on to say, For He spake and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. When the Lord speaks, that which He wants to happen, happens. And of course, the writer of Hebrews has confirmed for us that He upholds all the world by the power of His Word, Hebrews 1.3. Now the punishment would be complete and final for this tree. There would be no return to producing fruit. 
the tree would be dead from its very roots. Mark 11, verse 20. Now that, I guess, on first glance, and as I've read this over the years, sometimes it's hard to completely understand. When we move from this account of this fig tree into what happens next, it becomes a little, or it appears, to become a little disjointed. Maybe we're not putting together exactly what the Lord intended. But, what happened? He goes from cursing the tree to cleansing the temple. And what in the world do those two things have to do with each other? Well, after He cursed this tree, Jesus' effort is focused upon going into the great temple of God in Jerusalem and addressing the issues there. Upon His entry, what did He begin to do? Well, when we continue in our passage, Mark eleven fifteen through 16, it says, He began to cast out them that sold and brought in the temple, and overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves, and would not suffer that any man should carry any vessel through the temple. And it was at that time that He proclaimed, Is it not written, My house shall be called of all nations the house of prayer. But ye have made it a den of thieves, Mark eleven seventeen. Why did he cleanse the temple? He went in, understood what he was seeing. He saw that the actions of those people were simply evil. They were making financial gain, and it was cloaked in religion. They were taking advantage of God's people. They were taking advantage of God Himself. But this wasn't the only time that this happened, was it? In fact, He had done this exact same thing previously. Early in His ministry, uh, the Jewish Passover was at hand and Christ cleansed the temple, John chapter 2. Two separate events. Not two accounts of the same event. He cleansed the temple twice. Notice the words of Christ on that occasion. Take these things hence, make not my father's house an house of merchandise. So it's very clear that this was not the first offense of its kind that these people had committed against God. So as we see him walking through the temple area into the court of the Gentiles, the noise of the interactions must have been deafening. Everyone could have heard the, the money changers, the buyers, the sellers, those trying to uh, trade money or bargaining or doing whatever they wanted to do to buy what they needed. It must have been heard in every corner of that area. We know that some were most likely buying pigeons that they could offer for sacrifice, Leviticus 12, verse 6. Many of them would have been changing their Roman money for the shekel required in the temple because it was against the law to use money that had the image of the uh, emperor upon it, Exodus 20, verse 4. But notice what he did. He cast out buyer and seller alike. Again, we see that God is no respecter of persons. All will be punished to engage in sin. He turned over the tables of the money changers. He cast out the people. He threw the seats of them that sold the doves. He was absolutely upset with their sin. He did not like what he was seeing. Later in his public discourse before the cross, 
Christ sharply denounced the scribes and the Pharisees. Notice what He said. He stated in clarion tones, Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. Matthew twenty three thirty eight. That is very interesting to me. Up until this point in the history of man, Christ referred to His temple as the house of God. As God's place. We see that in places like Matthew 21. We see it in Mark 11, Luke 19, John 2:16. He called it my house. But now he changes. He's calling it something else, isn't he? Why? Because they had driven God from his house. They had not accepted God. They had taken over His house and it became their house. Throughout the chaos of this moment, we see the emotion from Jesus and we have to understand there was a reason for that emotion. There was a reason that He acted in the way in which He acted. There was definitely a cause for what happened. Now remember, His terminology changed. It was my house. It was my Father's house. Now He says, your house It's no longer God's. There's a cause for that. Their pretension was more than he could tolerate. He simply could not take it any longer. Because of their attitude toward all things spiritual, God's presence left His temple. It left. He was no longer there. He turned it over to those who embraced doctrines that He did not embrace and those who taught the commandments of men instead of the commandments of truth. Christ said this, Matthew 15, 8 through 9. He said, This people draweth nigh unto me with their mouth, and honoreth me with their lips. But their heart is far from me. But in vain they do worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. Paul described to those at Rome what God will eventually do when we behave in such a way. Those who disregard God will eventually be given up. Paul said, Wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts. Romans 1.24 He would go on to say that for this cause God gave them up unto vile affections. Romans 1.26 But he doesn't stop there. Notice what he continues to say in verse 28. He said, And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. God will eventually allow us to have what we asked for. He eventually will punish those and bring judgment upon those who refuse to obey Him. Now as we look at the account of what is unfolding, we see the Lord cursing a fig tree. Well, what does that have to do with cleansing the temple? Well, you have people in the temple claiming to be God's people. You have a fig tree claiming to be producing fruit. And we see the judgment of the fig tree, and we see the prophecy of the judgment to come upon God's people. God left His holy temple. If it was hunger that brought Jesus to the fig tree, the fact that it did not have fruit like it said it would have, brought to His attention the actions of those who claimed to be His. 
This same city over which he had wept. This same city and people for which he would give his life and die. And so now we see the cause and the emotion. Centuries early, earlier than this, the Hebrew nation had been separated from the pagan peoples of antiquity. They had been separated from the pagans to fill a special role, to be God's people, to be a part of His divine economy, to be a part of the scheme of redemption, to be a part of what would usher in life to the world. And yet they had simply gone right back into it. In the days of Moses, the people of Israel were designated as Jehovah's firstborn, Exodus 4.22. And they were in fact granted priority status. God thus said to Pharaoh, who held Israel captive, He said, let my people go. But over the centuries, we see the same thing happening over and over again. Rebellion against God. Not wanting to give oneself to God. Wanting to have what they wanted instead of what the Creator of the world wanted. It was an act that continually kept happening. Isaiah once characterized their worsening attitude toward God in this way. Isaiah 1 verse 3. He said, The ox knows his owner, and the donkey his master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. They did not know, neither did they understand who their leader was, who their king was. But it was an understanding of which they did not have that would get them in the end. But it was a misunderstanding that they chose to have. Well, there were occasional periods of spiritual revival in the land of Israel. The days of Josiah, for example, were good days. He was a good king. The tragic fact that the nation was on a gradual decline, a gradual slide into sinfulness, and a nation that was degenerating into a path of apostasy would eventually culminate in the terrible cries that we read about in Luke 23, verse 21, Crucify Him, crucify Him. After all that He had done, all that God had given them, and the Jewish people through the influence upon which they lended toward Rome, murdered the very Son of God. They had enjoyed every conceivable spiritual advantage. They were given everything they needed to have to find a life of eternal bliss. But they had become utterly a renegade nation. When we think about the laws of God, we understand that a precept is a rule or a law that must be followed. We do not have a choice when it comes to that. We quickly learn that not only is pretentiousness condemned, but productivity is demanded. The Jews were pretentious in their actions. They were pretentious in their claims of righteousness. They were simply and wholly hypocritical. And they were as unproductive in the work of God as one could possibly be. In the destruction of the fig tree, the Son of God suggested these things. 
the nation as a political entity was going to come to an end. It was a worthless mechanism that had been wholly corrupted and therefore was worthy of nothing but destruction. That destruction would not be too distant in their future. When Rome fell upon Jerusalem in A.D. 70, the city was destroyed and along with it their beloved temple. And from the tree we learn that there is in the most profession of someone doing good, there is usually the least production. And the fact presented itself in those people in the temple. Now let's go back and think about it. He walks upon the tree. It says it has fruit upon it. It is a barren tree, and not only does it not have fruit at that point, it's not going to have fruit. He goes into the temple and he sees these people claiming to be God's people. He sees them making merchandise, making money upon God's religion. They claim to be God's people. Not only are they not God's people, they're not going to be God's people. They don't want it. They're not interested. Only divine providence will spare us, but it only spares that which is useful. Matthew 28, 19-20 Go into the world. Teach the gospel, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I will be with you always, even unto the end of the world. We must be useful. We must be productive. If we're not producing, then we are pretentious when we claim to be God's people. The purpose behind the cursing of the fig tree becomes clearer when studied in the context of the Jewish people And in fact, we learned that it was an object lesson. He cursed the tree because it was hypocritical. He went in and he cleansed the temple because the people were hypocritical. They claimed to be gods, but they were not. And as it unfolds, and we notice after having presented that lesson in an academic way, he showed what would happen in a real life situation. And that was just the beginning, a taste, we might say, of what would happen on that last day when we stand before Him. We understand now what things like that lead to. The end result, right? The fig tree told all that came by, I am bearing fruit. I am productive. But in reality, all it was was leaves. That's why later James would demand this. He said, Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. For the wrath of man worketh not righteousness of God. Wherefore, lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness, and receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your souls. But be ye doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. For if any be a hearer of the word, and not a doer, he is like a man unto Uh, beholding his natural face in a glass, for he beholdeth himself and goeth his way and straightway, forgetteth what manner of man he was. But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. 
what the Lord of harvest desires is performance as well as profession. We must profess to be Christians. That's part of the plan of salvation, isn't it? To profess our belief that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That He died, buried, and was resurrected to life. That's part of becoming a Christian. But we must also have productivity. It's not enough to hear the Word, believe it, repent of past sins, confess that Jesus is the Son of God. It's not enough to go into the watery grave of baptism, to be immersed in water for the forgiveness of our sins. It's not enough to simply just do that. We must be productive. We must produce fruit as Christians. And when we do not do that, our claiming to be Christians simply shows the world, and especially God, that we are nothing but hypocrites. Now we see the point of the lying tree. It's application to our own lives, isn't it? If we claim to be Christians, yet we haven't done those things that God has asked us to do, or maybe we have and we have fallen away, we're simply lying to ourselves. And in the end, destruction will be the result. If you find yourself in need of the Lord's invitation this time, if you've never obeyed the gospel or or maybe you have and you've become unfaithful, let's be honest with ourselves this day and ask God to forgive us, obey His plan of salvation, and He'll welcome us into His body. If you have need for that, please stand as we sing the invitation song. Why keep Jesus waiting?